So, we've been tackling this question of what do the scriptures primarily teach? And uh, last week we talked about um, what should us as human beings believe about God? And we combed through uh, Yahweh God's self-revelation to Moses um, in Exodus 34. Um, I'm not going to do too much of a recap, but one thing to say about his self-revelation to keep in mind is many people have something to say about God. Everyone has an opinion. But I think it's amazing that in our Holy Scriptures, God speaks for himself. So when we interrogate the scriptures, we don't have a God that's silent. We don't have a God that's mute, that's out of touch with reality. He understood even at that time that a revelation of himself was needed. And it was written not to us, but for us. So even we can look thousands of years in the past, we can see at a period of time, God knew he needed to give an explicit revelation of who he is. The next half that I want to talk about today is what duties God requires of us. I think sometimes as us as Westerners, um, taking is always easy, but giving is the thing we usually struggle with. We ask God for a lot of things. We ask him for protection, we ask him for money, we ask him for help. But I wonder if there's room in our theological process that God could demand something of you. Can God demand something of you? Not ask. Demand. Why demand? Why the word duty? I thought this is a God of love and, you know. I think we've gotten a real twisted sense of who we are in light of a creator. Because we, ha- we live in this democratic society, <clears throat> we understand the autonomy of the human person outside of a community, outside of a power structure. But for much longer, from the beginning of time, there was understood something called hierarchy and rank. So your father is greater than you. Your great-grandfather is greater than your father. Your ancestor is greater than you and your father and your grandfather. If God is the creator of the first man, then God is greater than every human being. So because he is the person that breathed breath into Adam, he's the one that is the father of the human race. He has the right to demand something from whom he has created. So, this is why we can say, 
What duties does God require of us? So we can start at Matthew 22. Matthew 22, let's do 36. Again, keep in your mind, what do the scriptures primarily teach? Part of that teaching is what God requires of us. So the question is, what does God require of us? And Jesus answers this question by by answering another question. And you could see it here in verse 36. It says, teacher, it's a lawyer asking Jesus this question. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law. And he said to him, this is Jesus speaking, you shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Duty. The main duty that every human being that has ever existed was to love God. That's what the scriptures primarily teach. They t- the scripture teaches a lot of things. But what is the primary? Jesus says it here. The commandment is to love God. This puts us in a weird situation here. Love, command, duty, requirement. At least when you think through it, sometimes I, I, it might feel like this is a puzzle that doesn't really go together. Because when we think of love, we don't automatically think of a requirement. We think of this is supposed to be something that's free and there's emotions given to it. Again, I think this is a Western thing that we often throw our own definition of love Onto the scriptures. I believe the scriptures through and through, and I can't bring up every single scripture to prove it to you. But when God, through the law and the prophet, says to love him, there's two ideas that support this. Meaning, in God's mind, when he says love, two words are also in his mind. And those two words are obedience and trust. Let's make it clear. For God, in his definition, in his dictionary, you will see love, colon, trust and obedience. That's his definition of love. So let's walk this out. Obedience. What does that mean in relation to love? 
Well, let's go to Romans 6, 16. Romans 6, 16. It says, do you not know that the one whom you present yourselves as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of that same one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Paul's putting a question here. Who you obey, you are a slave to. I know when we bring up slavery, especially in this kind of climate, we often think of the transatlantic slave trade. But I want you to think as the biblical writers would have thought. I want you to take your mind out of the westernized propaganda that we have and put your mind in a society where slavery was commonplace. People would actually put themselves in what we would say indentured service because they maybe had a debt or maybe they wanted to earn to see how they can maneuver up the societal ladder. But it wasn't this idea that we have around the transatlantic slave trade. So using this image of slave and master, Paul is painting this picture that who you obey, that person can be called your master. And he uses the example of slaves towards two things, obedience and sin. Now, for us that are redeemed, we have the ability to sin. We still have temptation to sin. But by the grace of God, we are no longer its slave. Meaning, there was a time there was nothing that you could do outside of obeying that master called sin. Even the good that you did, on some level, you were still obeying sin. You had an inability to truly obey God. Grace by faith, by grace through faith, you now have the ability to obey a new master. Because of that, Paul's now saying, you now have the opportunity to choose between two masters. There was a time you were dead in sin, you couldn't choose. It's one, sin. Now, you can be a slave to obedience, which produces righteousness. Versus a master called sin that produces death. But what does this have to do with love? 
in the thought of every person that wrote the Bible, it was the same thing. You cannot say you love a master and you didn't obey him. It didn't make sense. If Yahweh God is your God, he created you, he has authority over you, he can say, do this, you say, yes, God. But if you say, no, God, and you do the same thing like the Israelites did, you turn to other gods and you worship other gods... In the mind of the scriptures, Yahweh God is not your master. You have another master. Let me pull you back even further. I think I brought this up last week. I'm going to bring it up again. This is idea of sin being this creature, this illness, this force that has a hold on the human heart. When Cain was jealous of his brother, Abel, God said to him that sin is crouching at the door and it seeks to have you, but you must master it. Let me pull you back further. When God created the garden and put Adam and Eve in it, He said, you can eat anything, but there's one tree that you cannot touch. A master has the right to give a law and has the authority that would beckon you to obey it. Let me help you paint it some more because I want this. This kind of thing has to be caught. God took Israel, freed them out of bondage, out of Egypt, and brought them across the Red Sea. Then he gave them the Ten Commandments. In the light of the scripture, God is their master. You were enslaved, you were redeemed. The person that redeemed you is your new master. Is it starting to click now? If that person that redeemed you is your new master and they say, this is what I want you to do. In the eye of the biblical writers to show that you love that person that redeemed you, that new master, you obey him. Bring you back to this scripture here. Paul, again, is putting this before us. Who is your master? The scriptures are teaching something. If you love God, you have to obey him. If God is your God, He's your master. If God created every human being, he's your master. Period. So through special revelation, he gave us laws called moral law. 
for us as believers. This is just, we obey the word of God. The reason we obey is because we love our master. If you disobey, you are not saying you just don't love God. You're actually saying you love another master. Disobedience to God is not benign. You're choosing a side. Read it throughout the scriptures. God did not see when Israel sacrificed to other gods as something benign. He was saying, oh, you don't want to obey me. You love those other gods. Okay, go serve them in their land. This is what you want to do. So you can't be part of my land. You don't love me. I'm not your master. You sacrifice, you obey these other gods. So go serve them. Sin or obedience. The entire scriptures have been knocking on obedience. If you love God, you obey. There is no middle choice. It's an A or B multiple choice question. There's no other option. There's no both. In God's mind, in the law and the prophets, it's simple. You have a choice to make. Sin, which produces death, or obedience to Yahweh God, and it produces life and righteousness. Obedience. Let's go to trust. The scriptures primarily teach us about what God requires of us. First is obedience. That we obey him. That's love. The next thing is trust. To God, that's love. Go to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. I think I'm going to read. I wanted to do one verse, but I think I'm going to read up to that verse. 11 verses 1. This is popular, but I want you to see it through the lens of the scriptures. Now, faith is the certainty of things hoped for, a proof of things not seen. For by it, people of old gained approval. By faith, we understand that the world has been created by the word of God. So that what is seen has not been made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he was attested to be righteous. God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. 
By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For before he was taken up, he was attested to have been pleasing to God. Here's the kicker. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For the one who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he proves to be one who rewards those who seek him. Love. Again, remove your mind from a romance movie or a romance novel. Obedience and trust is God's love language. Obedience and trust is God's love language. Without faith, it's impossible. Not hard. Not highly unlikely. Impossible. The scriptures have been saying it since Genesis. Why? The writer literally said it. He brought up Abel. In that little story of two brothers sacrificing and one killing the other, God, through special revelation to this writer, saw he offered a better sacrifice because there was faith there. Cain didn't please God. It actually says before, when God talks about sin crouching, before that it says, if you do well, wouldn't you be accepted? In God's mind, doing well is obeying him and trusting him. But trust is a tough thing, though. Especially if you've been hurt. It's tough. Trust is difficult when you've been let down. Trust is difficult if it's something that is the hardest thing in your life right now. And you've been let down so many times. And it's something that you feel like if you don't handle it, no one else will be able to do it. That's when trust is hard. But even though this thing seems impossible, even though that thing and everyone has a thing. Seems like there is no tangible evidence Physical, concrete evidence, substance to give you a reason to trust God. He gives us a substance called faith. It's the thing that is hoped for. It's something that might not feel like a table or the chair you're sitting on. But the biblical writers call it 
a substance, it's, it's something that becomes the certainty that we don't currently have. There's a point where even though it looks its worst, God is saying, if you love me, you will trust me. Trust, at least it looks like to the biblical writers, is simple, but it's not easy. Because when we say you're saved by grace through faith, you just have to believe. It's actually pretty simple. But that chasm, through, let's back up. Through revealed scripture, God gives us every reason to have faith in him. But us as human beings, all we see is the chasm between us and God. Between us and our situation. Between us and our problem. So we have enough evidence to actually give God a try. But to actually give God a try is the best bet you can make. But if you're a person, and I'm like that sometimes, sometimes meaning a lot of times, it feels as though the best bet is yourself. You see, that's that's where so many faiths in our world are at today. It's their best effort to cling at the idea that they can cross the uncrossable chasm to God. They can cross that uncrossable chasm to solving the human condition. So many have tried. Every faith has a solution. But all of those solutions include work. It includes betting on yourself. It includes you not having faith and trust, not in the creator, but faith and trust in yourself. Read it. Pick up the other holy books that they say is holy, look at them. You can only come to the conclusion that you got to work for your salvation. But the Holy Scriptures rip away that idea. You know when they actually rip away that idea? It's not when Jesus came. Genesis 3.15 is when that idea was ripped. Humanity had perfection. They had everything that we're trying to get back to as as a human race. They had it all. All they had to do was prove that they can obey one simple moral law. And humans proved that when we get the ball, we will drop it. Genesis 3.15, read the story of the fall. That's what it is. And the rest of the scriptures is just building on that whole idea. 
more ways that human beings have just fallen and tried to grasp and fallen and tried to grasp and fallen. Our best efforts cannot cross the uncrossable chasm of us and the realized solution of God, eternity, and the solve of the human condition. So the Holy Scriptures are claiming to say obedience and trust is how you love God. And if all the law and the prophets and the gospels are showing us the same solution, you can take a lot of great wisdom from these scriptures, but there's a primary message. I had a conversation with somebody. He used to go to church. He said he's not a practicing Christian now. And he brought up many different ideas. And I realize now, when you become a minister and you say that you're a minister, people, people tend to sort of say, hey, I don't go to church now, but they want to have conversations about how they've kind of pieced together the human condition. We just can't get this right. But if you look at this and this and this and this and this, it just makes so much sense. Don't you agree, Pastor? One of the things he said to me was, if you look at the teachings of Buddha and the teachings of Jesus, they're so similar. You know what I said? Yeah, you can draw some sort of conclusion. But there's one fatal thing that you're missing. Jesus didn't just claim to be a good teacher. He literally said that he's God in flesh. He literally said that eternity, the solve, the thing that every human being is grasped for, the chasm, the uncrossable chasm that every human being is desperately trying to get across. There is now a bridge and the bridge is him. No other faith claims that. No other faith claims absolute assurity that you will be saved. No absolute assurity that you can cross the chasm to God. Absolute assurity that the human condition has been solved through Jesus Christ. And will finally be put to end when Christ comes again. No other faith does that. Every other faith says, bet on yourself, give it a try, and hope when you're reincarnated or when you're standing before God, your good outweighs your bad. And let's just hope. Cross your fingers, buddy. That's the best every other faith's got. I've read the other holy books, so-called. I read them. Every single one of them is telling you, you got to work. That's it. But my Bible tells me the work of God is to believe on whom he has sent. 
That's radical, isn't it? Think about it, folks. The power has been stripped from you. This is why the gospel is said to reveal what's in the heart. When you now know that there is a God that decides where you go and you have nothing that you can do to change that reality. And all he asks is that you submit to him with love, which means you trust and obey him. We really get to see who you are. Because human beings have this thing called pride. We want to be the person that hits the game winning shot. We want to be the person that stands on the podium and says that I won the race because of my hard work and my sacrifice. I did it. That's what we want. Every one of us. We want to feel like we accomplished something. But Jesus says, I accomplished something. You just got to trust that I did it. And trust that what I did will cover you. Trust and obey. There's no other way. Trusting and obeying. It brings us now to this question. How do I do that? How do I trust and obey God? How do I love God? Is it just to obey the Ten Commandments? Is it just to obey all the 613 laws? Is it just to come to church? Is it to make sure I attend anytime the doors open, I'm here? Is that what trusting and obeying God is? Is that what loving God is? Trusting and obeying God is trusting and obeying Jesus. I'm going slow because I'm building an argument here, folks. Trusting and obeying God is trusting and obeying Jesus. The claims that he makes, that's the natural conclusion. I'll prove it. John 8. It's one of my favorite scriptures in the, in the Bible because of how rough it is. John 8, 34. I'm going to read like the whole thing. So Jesus answered them. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave of sin. We covered that. Now, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are seeking to kill me. Because my word has no place in you. 
I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you have heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. Pause here. What did Abraham do? He believed God. But Pastor Joel, that's only one half of the equation. He obeyed God too. God said to that son that he promised to him, Isaac, you're going to sacrifice him today. What? Sacrifice your son today. That's what's going to happen. And he was going to do it. You know why? An angel was sent to interrupt the whole thing. The scriptures actually said, and it also backs up the argument of James, that trusting and obedience actually work together because if you truly trust, you will obey. It's actually, obedience is the fruit of trust. And the scriptures actually said, at that moment, it actually confirmed what the scriptures said about Abraham before, that when he believed, God counted it as righteousness. If you are Abraham's children... Do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we are not born as a result of sexual immorality. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father... You would love me. For I came forth from God and I am here. For I have not even come on my own, but he sent me. I'm going to work out the scripture here. So many claims so many claims in the scripture. They claim to love God. Jesus here said, if you love God, if God's your father, if you're related to God, if you are the people of God, who you see standing before you, you would have nothing but love for me. You know why? Because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. When you hear Jesus speak, what you see Jesus do 
You are seeing God. So if you hear the words of Jesus, if you see the deeds of Jesus, and it puts you in a situation that you hate him, if you dislike him, if you don't want to trust him, if you don't want to obey him, Jesus is saying, on some sort of level, you're lying. If I'm the image of the invisible God, and I didn't even come on my own, but he sent me. I don't do anything on my own accord, but do what the Father tells me to do. If all that is true, and you hate Jesus, you cannot say, you're children of God. Love. It's not a romance novel. This is it. Why do you not understand, verse 43, what I am saying? It is because you cannot listen to my word. You, of, you are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he tells a lie, he speaks from his own own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies but because I say the truth you do not believe me it's pretty black and white here folks you say you love God you gotta trust and obey and if the image of the invisible God tells you this is the way this is what you must do. Then you have to now say, I love God by trusting and obeying Jesus. If you can't do that, you're lying. I'll prove it. First John. First John two. It's first John two, three to six, and then we're gonna to jump to four twenty. So first John two three. This is gonna sum up what I've been saying for the past few minutes here. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, he is a, he is a, he is a liar. And not just a liar, but the truth is not in him. It's one thing to say that you are a liar, but to say that you're a liar 
and the truth is not in you? He's literally saying, your father's the devil. Go back to the scripture we just read. In Jesus' mind, if you cannot receive the truth, you can, I'm the image of the invisible God. You have no reason to not believe me. If you do not want to believe me, your father is not God. If you say that your father is God and you refuse to love Jesus, which is trusting and obeying Jesus, you're a liar. And you're not just a liar, but the truth is nowhere to be found in you. Five, but whoever follows his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Go to 420. If we love God, we got to love Jesus. The outflow of loving God is loving Jesus. And the outflow of loving Jesus is loving others. As Jesus said, you have to love other people like the way you love yourself. Listen, the scriptures are building this argument. Do you see where this is going here? 420. If someone says, I love God, and yet he hates his brother or sister, he is a, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother and sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. He didn't bring up a lofty argument here. You don't have to look up the original Greek here. It's plain as day. You can't see God. But the outflow of loving God and loving Jesus is you're going to love the people that he made And when you see them, you see the image of God. That's the natural cycle of it. And if you claim to love God and you don't love Jesus, you're a liar. And if you claim to love your neighbor, if you claim to love God, you claim to love Jesus, but you hate your brothers and sisters. I don't hate my brothers and sisters. Hate such a strong word. You know how Jesus defined hate? It's not taking out a knife and killing them. It's the words that come out of your mouth. It's the thoughts that go inside your head. How do you view your brother? What do you say to your brother? How do you talk to your brother? In what manner do you talk to your brother? That is what the scriptures are pointing to. If you say you love God, but you don't love Jesus, the whole argument just unravels. So the question, and I believe I did justice to it, 
What do the scriptures primarily teach? As we talked about last week, what humans should believe about God and what duties God requires of us. So, in closing, we know clearly what God is asking us to do. It's clear. You can read it in Genesis. You get in three chapters, it's clear. We say that we are people of the book. We say that we love God. We say that we love Jesus. Let's put that to the test. Do you trust and obey God? Do you trust and obey Jesus? Do you love your brothers and sisters? Let's pray.